This is District Sentinel Radio, that loud newscast on the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of the intern. Nate is not a worker. Studios in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. We're still out of town, folks. We're on vacation. We'll be back on August 27th. Between now and then, we're releasing Sentinel Cast interviews on our SoundCloud. This one from July takes a look at the Supreme Court's union busting decision in Janice v. AFSME. To chat about the decision and its aftermath, we brought on Christine Giovannis from the Chicago Teachers Union. So how is CTU organizationally, uh, internally, as to at least what you can tell us and share, how is CTU preparing for life after Janus? Uh, is there a concern within the organization that funding might be a little harder to come by or not so much CTU itself? So we um, have gotten the number of fair share payers, also known as free riders, down to under 300 um, out of about just over 25,000 members. So we don't actually expect the immediate hit from Janice to be um, particularly substantial. Now, that said, we do expect that the billionaire bloodsuckers that have essentially been bankrolling this case in cases of its ilk um, in its rolling assault on people's right to organize and fight collectively uh, for rights on the job, uh, work with dignity and um, a living wage are going to mount a massive and extremely well-funded uh, campaign to try to actually entice members to abandon their union membership. Uh, we run from a bottom-up, rank-and-file-driven uh, organizing model, so we think we're at least as well-positioned as any public sector union out there. We also expect the battle, frankly, to be formidable because um, the pockets of um, the opposition out there are as deep as they can possibly get. So, um, you know, we're essentially pitting an organizing model um, uh, that is rank and file driven, built on internal democracy against more billions of dollars than we could possibly count. So, and we uh, think we'll prevail. So you mentioned that your uh, membership, uh, your agency fee uh, participation rate, if, however you want to call it, that that's going pretty well. But the the forces against unions are dark and have very deep pockets. Uh, are you afraid of possible lawsuits being funded by uh, some of these uh, billionaires? I mean, that's certainly um, a possibility. You know, there's there's uh, been some discussion and also some legislative movement in a number of states around the nation um, to actually try to address the issue of um, uh, fair share payers um, uh, through state law. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're not particularly at this point aggressively um, pushing that line in Springfield, um, Illinois State Capitol, because it's our conviction that actually it's really on us um, as, a, as a collective, if you will, to convince people who are eligible for union membership um, about the reason it makes sense for us all to be 
standing together in one big union in CPS. Um, so we've actually had some success just in the last um, year alone in actually adding the number of job titles of those who are eligible to join our union um, to begin to grow that base. So we've never represented just teachers, um, certainly not in the last 10 years. We represent thousands of um, paraprofessionals, school clerks, um, a host of other positions um, that do frontline work in the schools but are not necessarily in-classroom teachers because we all basically confront the same obstacles in terms of delivering a quality public education to our students. Um, and we all confront the same bad bosses. So uh, rather than taking the kind of legislative approach, at least at this time that we've seen uh, being undertaken by some other uh, public sector unions in some other states to seek, uh, for example, to impose fees on um, those who elect not to use, uh, join the union, but in fact um, can still avail themselves of the services and support that a union provides them. Our goal instead is to actually convince those folks to join the union. So what, what have you found are the best strategy to convincing those folks? You said at the beginning that you have lowered the number of people paying fair share fees within the union. It sounds like this is an active, ongoing strategy. What have you found that works and uh, you'll continue to rely on as this gets more difficult moving forward? So what we've found consistently, despite the endless, you know, well bankroll propaganda out there about why it's a great time to quit your union and, um, you know, walk away from any uh, responsibility to your fellow workers to pay dues, what we've found is that actually making the case to people who may not know the strength that comes in uh, organizing and fighting collectively against bad work rules, bad working conditions and bad bosses is actually a pretty powerful argument. Um, we're getting ready to go into contract negotiations for uh, district employees, district Chicago public school employees. Um, those will probably start in the next uh, several months. We're still working with management to lay down a schedule. Um, that contract for district teachers, not charter teachers, but district teachers expires in June of 2019. And we expect this to be an extremely heated uh, contract battle. Uh, we have a lot of demands that we're going to put on the table, which include the fact that we're not going to allow, as we have not allowed in the past, uh, this mayor, Rahm Emanuel, who runs our school system, um, possibly the most undemocratic school district in the state, um, to continue his attack on our pensions, um, our pay, our work rights, um, and equally, if not more importantly, the quality of education, including the facilities that is offered to our overwhelmingly low-income students. And what we've found is that rather than just going to uh, an individual who comes into CPS as a teacher or a PSRP, for example, with a laundry list of our accomplishments, although that's certainly important, um, what seems to be more effective is making the case for why collective, unified, democratically driven, rank-and-file, accountable organizing against the predations of the boss 
and in this city, the boss is really the mayor, um, actually makes sense for us all as workers and makes the most sense in terms of our advocacy on behalf of our students and their families. CTU uh, itself noted on the day of the Janus decision that uh, the boss for uh, its members is a Democrat, Rahm Emanuel, and Democrats themselves haven't really been great for unions uh, elsewhere in recent years either. Uh, Thinking more broadly, uh, what do you think Democrats should do for labor now? And probably more importantly, what do you think labor should do if Democrats don't change? So I'll say a few things about that. Um, I I think, unfortunately, um, in today's day and age, and this has really been a dynamic that's been evolving since the mid-'80s, what it means to be a Democrat, big D, in terms of party affiliation becomes increasingly squishy. So we've seen in this country, really, since... um, Uh, leaders in the party on a national level um, really made a decision under um, Reagan's reign to uh, start to chase the same kinds of dollars that their, the corporate dollars that their opposition was chasing. At the same time, we've seen this sanitization, this abandonment really of the kind of New Deal policies um, that built such a loyal constituencies, such a strong following amongst working class Americans of uh, every ethnicity and every race uh, within the party. And that directly correlates in a completely inverse way to the kind of voter participation we've seen um, when it comes to Democratic Party turnout. It's an obstacle um, as the parties become, from its you know leadership on down, increasingly corporate, corporatized. It's, it's exactly the kind of obstacle that we've seen to voter engagement of the kinds of people that the party really set it out, set itself out to represent um, in the 30s and the 40s. Now, one could argue that even going back that far, those were accommodations that the party never made to people of color, made only grudgingly to women, um, and really only made as a party at the time as a way to stave off an even more militant um, and more progressive um, insurgent labor movement. Um, So I I say that, you know, to say that it's hard to know what precisely we mean by uh, Democrat these days. You know, we have some um, uh, elected officials in the city, and I'll point specifically to Alderman Sue Garza, um, who was the insurgent candidate in uh, South Chicago, um, a very old, very working class community of whites, Latinos, uh, Latinx people, and and blacks, um, which has really been decimated economically um, with the you know ongoing grinding collapse of um, uh, steel um, in this town and in this nation. At the same time, um, so her, her, and we supported her uh, in what are essentially open primaries for aldermen. We have another alderman in, in um, Chicago who is right now down at the border outside of San Diego, um, Carlos Rosa, um, who we've also supported for election, who is nominally a Democrat, also a proud member of DSA, Democrat, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, um, 
who has been um, one of the most uh, aggressively progressive voices in the city council against the kinds of austerity uh, uh, politics that we've seen come in endless streams from Rahm Emanuel, who's perhaps the consummate neoliberal corporate Democratic Party insider. So uh, I say that to say that in Chicago, in some ways, interestingly, we probably have more leverage because we run open primaries for our aldermanic seats uh, for people to step up to the plate and run as independent candidates free of the machinations and the chains, if you will, of an establishment machine Democratic Party. Um, but you're also seeing a growing wave, even of some party apparatchiks who are saying, you know, there is a sentiment out there nationally. And we saw it with Ocasio's race um, in unseating Crowley in New York, um, where rank and file Democrats, both small D and large D, are really rejecting the kinds of neoliberal corporate policies um, that have so dominated the party for the last three and a half decades and really run its agenda in terms of its support for working people into the ground. Um, so I think that there's both opportunity within the Democratic Party, but there's also enormous potential opportunity, at least in some legislative districts outside of the Democratic Party. We work very closely with United Working Families Chicago, which is one of the contingents that organized um, to uh, bring folks down to San Diego. Now, they're a freestanding endeavor in the city. Um, they um, uh, track along with many of the uh, values and policy positions that are espoused by the National United Working Families Party, but they really function um, as their own autonomous um, source of organizing and um, electoral engagement in the city. Those are very much the kinds of electoral endeavors that we want to support, those that put progressive values in the needs of uh, working-class people, particularly in a city like Chicago, working-class people of color, who despite Emanuel's best efforts to purge black people and brown people from within the borders of the city, continue to represent the majority of the people who live and try to work and raise families in this city. Um, so I'm not sure that it's necessarily an either or. Um, if you look at electoral politics basically as a tactic in what's got to be a much wider strategy that's designed to engage people democratically, um, to put forward planks, platform uh, positions, policies that really support first and foremost um, this country's working class, employed or unemployed or underemployed, and really lift up truly progressive values, uh, the kind that really caught fire in states all over the Midwest um, in the last presidential primary, where um, Bernie Sanders beat the corporate Democratic Party candidate, Hillary Clinton, um, in Wisconsin, in Indiana, in Michigan, and came very, very close uh, to defeating her here in Illinois. Um, there's an enormous opportunity, I think, to pull electoral politics away from the kind of uh, neoliberal agenda that the party apparatchiks and the Democratic Party in Wisconsin seem so committed to maintaining. Um, they've done everything, you know, wrong, essentially, 
since the last presidential election. They have, in fact, moved to tighten their rules further to keep the superdelegates' grip on, you know, around the throat of the party's rank and file. And they've done, frankly, not nearly enough to support not just organized labor per se, but the rights of ordinary working people to organize and fight collectively on the job in general. So that's being challenged both internally within the party by this insurgent progressive movement, and I think we'll see increasingly it challenged outside the bounds of the two-party system. And that's healthy, and that's good, and that's an important tactic. How do you see it being challenged uh, in the courts, and particularly the Supreme Court, which hasn't been an ally of working people historically and in recent decades has been downright adversarial? One of Trump's picks, Neil Gorsuch, signs on to the Janus decision. He's going to probably be able to point, appoint another justice to replace Anthony Kennedy, who will likely be uh, even more hardline against organized labor. So, I mean, even if you are able to get uh, the Democratic Party pushed um, toward more support for unions and even get legislation across, you're still going to be confronting a, a Supreme Court that uh, is not on board with the agenda. We've seen uh, 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 certain leftists call uh, call for the abolishment of the Supreme Court or packing Pack the, court, the court. Yeah. Um, wh- wh- well, that was that was FDR's approach. Right. If you all don't comply, I will simply, you know, expand your numbers till you do. So is this sort of, um, is this what we should be thinking about now, given the given where the court is headed and its current state? I think that really savvy. Uh, progressive lawyers and the groups on whose behalf they advocate have always recognized that the law in this country and using the law in this country is also a tactic, not a strategy. Um, That seems largely lost on, you know, senior party officials in D.C. Um, uh, So I would argue that they really need to sort of shift their gears there and look instead to the kinds of insurgent movements um, for more progressive policies and, frankly, (laughs) a better living wage in states like West Virginia, where it wasn't just teachers who went into motion. It was teachers and public sector workers from all over the state. Um, These are, these, you know, in West Virginia, in Oklahoma, in Colorado, in Arizona, I mean, many of these states, North Carolina, these states have essentially been right-to-work states for years um, and have recognized, I, I, I thought it was really interesting you know, a recent article in the Progressive Pop that suggested um, that at least in Wisconsin, there folks are considering sort of shifting gears because the kinds of mass mobilizations and protests haven't necessarily worked in terms of pushing this governor. I would argue that actually there's also been a sort of a deficient approach to some of the electoral um, uh, political goals that have been undertaken, at least historically in Wisconsin, since Walker came into office as well. Um, you know, public sector unions, including public sector unions, sent a lot of people up for the um, uh, recall and the referendum votes in Wisconsin in the wake of the occupation um, of the state capitol. What they didn't do was they didn't rec- they didn't uh, they didn't register new voters. Um, so, I mean, that's a strategy to essentially, you know, replicate the same mistakes over and over again and expect different results. 
Our task is really to organize the unorganized, to strengthen our own organized um, organizations, um, and to recognize that we have to put pressure on the opposition at every level. Is putting legal pressure on them where that opportunity presents important? Absolutely. Is it the only way we're going to get some relief for working class people in this nation? Absolutely not. Is it the only way we're going to preserve um, a woman's right to control her body? No. And we've seen that even though Roe v. Wade technically remains the law of the land, we've seen this massive constriction um, in women's access to health care, not just for abortion, but but for basic uh, reproductive rights um, and, and preventive care all over the nation in states that are more hostile to women's reproductive rights. Um, We've seen a greater constriction, um, even in in supposedly more liberal northern states, on immigrant rights, um, certainly since Trump came into power. You know, Chicago is ostensibly a sanctuary city, but we have a Democratic mayor in this city who touts, you know, very widely nationally and internationally that he runs a sanctuary city, when behind the scenes all he's done is tried to water down the terms of that actual sanctuary status for our own immigrant families. So it's got to be a multi-tiered pushback, and that includes efforts to get out in the streets. It includes efforts to dog these people in state legislatures um, and um, local legislative bodies. Um you know, one one of the one of the tactics that the right has used to great effect really since the Carter administration was to look to go hyper local in terms of seizing political power and controlling the political dynamic. Uh they didn't run for president right out the gate. They ran their political operatives for the local school boards, for the local library boards, for the local city councils. Um, No matter how trifling um, to some big shot the office might be, that's where they sought to place their people. They looked to snatch up control over local low-signal radio stations. We've got to, as progressives, um, as people who believe in the power of trade unionism, who believe in the power of unions, period, who believe in the benefits and understand the strengths of collective organizing for the common good, we've got to employ those same kinds of strategies uh, if we're going to be able to beat this back. It requires constant vigilance, um, but it also means that opportunities are going to surface Um, outside of some of the more uh, conventionally embraced arenas. So it won't just be legal battles, although that will be part of it. It won't even just be legislative battles, although that absolutely will be part of it. It means organizing in our neighborhoods, organizing at our job sites, um, organizing in, you know, across our our towns and our cities um, to seize every opportunity that there is to demand a more progressive, more humane, vision um, in terms of how our public dollars are being used and start to pull them out of the opportunities um, for those who really fund the opposition to simply seize those dollars for private gain. 
finally, uh, there's been almost a, uh, a sort of an apocalyptic tone uh, about the discourse over Janice, and it's certainly a awful attack on unions. It's it's a clear assault on organized labor. But would you say that you're cautiously optimistic? I mean, CTU has found ways of uh, of of promoting the idea of union membership, it seems, and uh, agency fees, uh, the, the giving only the agency fees doesn't seem like maybe it's the best long-term strategy and people should buy into the union, etc. Do you think there's reason to hope that maybe this can sort of jolt uh, organized labor into a better position down the line? I, th- I think that's certainly a, a possibility. Um, we certainly, um, within this union, believe that the real strength of the union has got to be grounded in the rank and file. And in that rank and file's embrace of our particular mission for this union, which is to educate our students and support our students on a path to the prospect for a better future than what their economic status would consign them to simply because of the kinds of overarching neoliberal austerity policies that we're all basically forced to live under right now, um, regardless of the party um, in power. Um, That fundamentally is what has to change. And we've got to be able to make the case to our fellow workers of where the strength in truly organizing and fighting collectively truly lies. Every union, if it's going to survive and thrive, has got to be willing to make that case to its own rank and file. That means you've got shop stewards, you know, at every site. And those shop stewards have to be accountable to the rank and file. It means, you know, sending off, you know, a call to a service center is not going to cut it. Um, But more importantly, it's not just a question of being able to grieve. You know, in in our union, a fairly small percentage um, of members are the folks who actually use the kinds of services that most people conventionally understand a a union provides. For example, um, the right to grieve, the the right to use a contract um, through the grievance process, the right to employ the union to defend you if you come under attack, Um, directly as an individual on the job. That contract is really there as a collective document that we all come together um, around in an individual school against an individual bully principal or in all schools against a bully mayor who calls the shots in the schools um, to force real change, to demand adherence to the letter of the contract, but more importantly, demand adherence to a set of values that puts workers' rights and the needs of those we serve front and center. That will increasingly be important for every public sector union out there um, if they are going to both hold their membership and really be able to realize the potential that a truly well-organized fighting union can bring to the table and out to the streets. Sounds like uh, unions should not cast all their eggs in one basket with the Democratic Party, which clearly has not been working out for them uh, for the past few decades. Uh, That's my take, at least anyway. Christine Giovannis, the CTU Communications Director, 
Do you have any social media accounts to plug? Sure. Um, people can follow us on Facebook. Uh, people can follow us on Twitter, CTU Local One. That's the number one. Um, and, uh, you know, check out our currently uh, terribly neglected uh, but soon to be revived Instagram account. And uh, we are about to deploy a new website. So come by in a month or two and check that out as well. Are there uh, sc- school lunch shots on the Instagram feed? <laughs> Yeah, we need to work up that Instagram feed for a whole host of reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, Christine. That'll do it for the show. Remember, regular newscasts resume on August 27th. We'll be back in D.C., so you don't have to be.